Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. An exotic beauty known as the Dragon Lady helped the Nixon campaign collude with a foreign government to defeat Hubert Humphrey in 1968. As a beauty pageant promoter promised President Trump's son negative information on Hillary Clinton from the Russian government during the 2016 campaign, we return to the story of Anna Cheneau from the Humphrey and Nixon campaign and the last-minute efforts by President Lyndon Johnson to salvage his plan for a pause in the bloodshed in the Vietnam War. Our whistle stop today is the 3rd of November, 1968. President Lyndon Johnson has been trying to negotiate a bombing halt in Vietnam. More than 11,000 Americans had died the year before. Close to 17,000 had died in that year of 1968, the most that would die in a single year in that conflict. Johnson had been patiently working to halt the bombing for months. Hanoi, in the north, had demanded an unconditional halt to the bombing of North Vietnam before it would discuss any settlement of the war. Johnson, however, insisted that Hanoi meet certain secret conditions before he would call off the aerial and naval bombardments. The North wouldn't bomb the cities or move into the demilitarized zone. Hanoi and this period had finally, in the fall of 1968, had finally accepted his demands. But just as he was working on the U.S. allies to put this pause into place, most importantly, just as he was working on the South Vietnamese, America's ally, the president and his plans were unwound. There were two culprits. The first was from his own team, candidate Hubert Humphrey, the vice president who was running since Johnson had taken himself out of the race. He gave a speech saying that he would withdraw troops if he was president. Get out of the Vietnam War, McGeorge Bundy, a former national security advisor to Kennedy and Johnson, offered a similar statement. The suggestion was that if Humphrey won, he would leave the South Vietnamese without an ally, and they'd get nothing after years of fighting. The other problem came from the other side, the Republicans, Richard Nixon. He was telling the South Vietnamese that if they did not accept Johnson's bombing pause in advance of any peace talks, that that would give them a better deal in a Nixon presidency. Now, how was he making that link? Well, the South Vietnamese believed that if there was a bombing pause, this pause that Johnson had been working on so assiduously, if there was such a pause, it would help Hubert Humphrey in the campaign against Nixon. There's a pause, Humphrey wins, they don't get such a good deal. But if there is no pause, if there are no talks, if the South Vietnamese just kind of drag their feet, then maybe Nixon would win and they'd get a better deal. State of the play was that communists wanted a share of power in the South and the doves in the United States thought that was maybe okay. And that was the signal that Humphrey was sending. But President Thieu, who is uh, the president of uh, South Vietnam, was not going to go along with that. If Nixon won, he wouldn't have to go along with that. So why have we started our tale on the 3rd of November, just three days from the election? Well, that's when the president is on the phone with his old friend and adversary, Everett Dirksen, the Senate minority leader, who you will remember from previous whistle stops. The president is calling from the LBJ ranch. It's 918 in the evening, and he's explaining to Dirksen what the stakes are for political opponents to delay this peace deal for the purposes of taking political advantage. Now, in the recording you're about to hear, and a lot of the work here we're going to do in this whistle stop, is the result of the amazing work they do at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where they've transcribed and put together these recordings from the Johnson era. Also, I should note a great book on this 
question is called Chasing Shadows, the Nixon Tapes, the Chano Affair, and the Origins of Watergate, written by Ken Hughes, who is uh, a part of that Miller Center. I'm calling it Chano. President calls her Chanote. He's got his accent. I'm just going to call her Chano, and that's where we're going to leave things. Anyway, in this tape you're about to hear, Johnson refers to the old China lobby, which is Chinese Americans who opposed the communists in China and supported the nationalist regime of Chiang Kai-shek. The Republican allies and Nixon allies would be included in that group. Johnson's also referring to the China lobby in this recording and others as a way to talk about Chanot, uh without always being explicit, which was sometimes useful in the conversations he was having, sort of painting a larger, broader conspiracy that might include people he didn't even know, but also a way to be quite vague if he if he thought his phone recording was being taped by someone other than himself. Anyway, here's the conversation with Dirksen on the 3rd. Now, since that agreement, we have had problems develop. First, there's been speeches that we ought to withdraw troops. Yeah. That was Humphrey and uh, uh, Bundy. Yeah. Or that we stop bombing without any obtaining anything in return. Yeah. Or some of our folks, including some of the old China lobby, are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the president that if he'll hold out till November the 2nd, they could get a better deal. Uh-huh. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. Treason. So begins our tale of one of the great October surprises in history. Depending on who you believe, former Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford, Johnson's Secretary of Defense, in his memoir, described this collusion between an agent working for Richard Nixon and the South Vietnamese government. He described it as a plot to help Nixon win the election by a flagrant interference in the peace negotiations. And also, Clifford put it rather cinematically as well. Here's how he describes the story we're about to go into. History is filled with characters who emerge for a moment, play a critical, sometimes even decisive role in a historic event, and then recede again into their normal lives. Such was the function of two people who played key roles in electing Richard Nixon in 1968. Bu Diem, the South Vietnamese ambassador in Washington, and Anna Cheneau. Who was Anna Cheneau? Or Chenault, as the president called her. She's our main character. She was the widow of General Claire Cheneau, Chenault, the commander of the famed Flying Tigers in Burma and China during World War II. The Flying Tigers, you know them. The shark-faced nose art planes that flew during the Second World War. And they were actually a part of the Chinese Air Force, actually. They were um, composed of Army, Navy, and Marine Corps pilots. And they were recruited to, because this war hadn't started yet, they were flying uh, as Chinese against the Japanese. And I barely understand the strategy involved in aerial combat. But apparently the commander, Cheneau, was so talented at using America's limited airplanes in making high-altitude slashing attacks on the more maneuverable Japanese planes. Anyway, Anna was the widow of the commander, but also the chairwoman of the Republican Women for Nixon in 1968. She was variously called the Dragon Lady and Little Flower by those in the Johnson administration. She was a member of that China lobby, strongly anti-communist, and in favor of beating back the North Vietnamese. So Nixon was her man. 
In early 1968, she started as a go-between uh, between the Nixon campaign and the South Vietnamese government. Her main interlocutor, a word I've, I've always thought is overused. Um, anyway, her interlocutor was the South Vietnamese ambassador, Diem, who had connections throughout Washington. And in the Nixon campaign, her contact was John Mitchell. Here's one communique between Mitchell and Chenault. I'm speaking on behalf of Mr. Nixon, Mitchell told her. It's very important that our Vietnamese friends understand our Republican position, and I hope you have made that clear to them. The reason a quote like that is important is because there was, for some period of time in history, some confusion about whether this story you're hearing today was was true. We've subsequently found notes and recordings and, and um, so forth that give it support. But at first, basically, Nixon denied that any of this had happened, and so did Cheneau, and so did the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United States. Chenault also passed information through the South Vietnamese ambassador to Taiwan, who happened to be the South Vietnamese president's brother. The arrangement started at at a meeting which took place early in the year, 1968, in New York. Johnson administration knew about the South Vietnamese ambassador and Chenault meeting with Nixon, but they thought it was okay because, hey, the candidate running for office should be able to meet with the ambassador of an ally. Chenault was dating a fellow named Tommy the Cork Corcoran, who was a Democrat, a former FDR aide. So she had a little cover, which is to say she could go up and meet with Nixon, even though Nixon was a supporter, and be involved in all of that because Tommy the Cork Corcoran was a longtime Washington, well, lobbyist, fixer. When Johnson came to town, FDR handed him a slip of paper and said, here's a phone number. When you get to Washington, ask for Tom. A powerful, powerful person among the things he was known for was helping United Fruit find a way to overthrow the government of Guatemala. Anyway, there was no reason to think that even though she was a Nixon supporter, that she would stray too far, given that she was dating Tommy the Cork Corcoran. What the Johnson team didn't know, though, is that this meeting was the beginning of a permanent channel with Chenault talking to Mitchell in the in the Nixon campaign, then talking to the South Vietnamese ambassador Diem, and then Diem talking to the South Vietnamese government back in Saigon. Chenault said she talked with Mitchell at least once a day, and Diem, for his part, was friends with lots and lots of Washington politicians. Now, we should put Nixon's mindset into play here. Why would Nixon even flirt with getting involved in back-channel discussions about a U.S. possible bombing halt? Well, according to Jack Farrell in his new book on Nixon, After 1960 and Nixon's loss to Kennedy, he became overwhelmingly paranoid about what an opponent would do to win an election. So that was his frame of mind. He thought President Johnson would do whatever was necessary to elect Humphrey, even stage a fake bombing halt to help Humphrey's chances. Again, the idea being that if there was a bombing halt, Humphrey would be able to say, hey, see, we're on our way out of this horrible war, and that would give him an electoral boost. I knew what was coming, said Nixon in Farrell's book on Nixon. Big events like a breakthrough in Southeast Asia could, quote, change people, Nixon feared. Events could cut down a lead as big as ours. Nixon used Chenault to let the South Vietnamese president know that Saigon would be better off if a deal was worked out in the future with a Republican president, namely Dick Nixon. Of course, the the North Vietnamese position just it was basically Humphrey would be a good person to win because they believe that Humphrey was going to try and get out of the war right away. And that would mean they would get more of what they wanted than what the American South Vietnamese allies wanted. Now, faithful Whistle Stop listeners, let's pause here for a second because I want to tell you about a different 
Great Slate podcast. It's the Double X Gab Fest. Just like Whistle Stop, it's a bi-weekly show that discusses politics. But it's not really in the past like I do, but it's this is a show about feminism, gender, sexuality, and health. It's hosted by New York Magazine's Noreen Malone, Invisibilia co-host Hannah Rosen, and managing producer of Slate podcast June Thomas. This week, they'll dive into Silicon Valley's sexism, the Netflix show Glow, and whether the New York Magazine piece on climate change means people shouldn't have kids. Subscribe and listen at slate.com slash xx. Now back to our tale. On October 16th, President Johnson held a conference call with all three candidates, Nixon, Wallace, and Humphrey, to tell them about the state of these negotiations. And Johnson said, quote, there had in fact been some movement by Hanoi, but that anything might jeopardize it. What he didn't tell the three candidates was that the South Vietnamese leader had agreed the day before to a pause in hostilities. Johnson saw Nixon later that night at the Alfred E. Smith dinner in New York and told him to, quote, be careful about what I had to say on Vietnam. Can you imagine that today, by the way? I mean, so what was Johnson worried about? He was worried about that this delicate bombing pause would be undone by the political behavior of any of the three candidates. That's why he was briefing them on the call on the 16th of October. And the nominee of the opposition party, he was giving this information that could have undone Johnson because Nixon could have talked about it. And in fact, that's what Johnson alleges he did. But he was willing to give him this information in the middle of a campaign because he assumed that Nixon would not misuse it, that there was a certain kind of code and norms that would kick in and be in place. Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford explains that they learned through regular intelligence, not anything, any wiretaps or anything, that Chenault was involved in this scheme. And that put the administration in mid-October in a pickle after he had had, the president had this conversation with the candidates, because not unlike the Obama administration that was in a pickle when it found out through intercepts that Michael Flynn was talking to the Russian ambassador, the Johnson administration knew things about what Chenault was up to, but they shouldn't know them because that meant they were spying on an ally. Of course, in the Obama case, they were not spying on an ally. They were spying on an adversary. But here's Johnson explaining this worry once he starts to find out that this plot has started to take place. This is how he explains his worry about going public to his top advisors in a phone call. Now, uh, I don't want to have information that ought to be public and not make it so at the uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know how much uh, we can do there, and I know we'll be charged with trying to interfere with the election. And I think this is something that's going to require the best judgments that we have. And now here's another recording uh, from about that same time, where Johnson, having learned this about Chanel and about what Nixon was up to, he calls his friend Richard Russell because... Russell is, uh, even though they fought fought with each other over the civil rights legislation, uh, he was his closest advisor in the Senate in terms of Vietnam. So what Johnson does is he starts out explaining what he's learned and how he's learned and why he's turning to to Russell for counsel. Basically, he says, well, I got one this morning that's pretty rough for you, meaning I've set up, I've got a problem here that I need you to solve. We have found that our friend, the Republican nominee, our California friend, has been playing on the outskirts with our enemies and our friends both, our allies and the others. He's been doing it through rather subterranean sources here. 
What then Johnson lays out is how he moved from having been informed by normal sources, not through wiretaps or anything, to taking more extraordinary efforts to put on surveillance to follow up on what they'd learned from from various other sources, some of which were on uh, Wall Street. Somehow this information came uh, came through Wall Street. Anyway, here's Johnson explaining the next step he took after he heard rumors about what Chenault might have been up to. When we got that cure by accident as a result of some of our Wall Street connection, that caused me to look a little deeper. And uh, I have means of doing that, as you may well imagine. And... Uh, Mrs. Chenault is contacting uh, uh, their ambassador from time to time. Seems to be kind of the go-between, the Shanghai Shek deal. In addition, uh, their ambassador is saying to them that uh, Johnson uh, is desperate and is just uh, moving heaven and earth to elect Humphrey. So don't you get sucked in on that. He's, he is, he is uh, kind of uh, these folks' agents here this little South Vietnamese ambassador. Now, this is not guesswork. The president is saying this is not guesswork because the NSA has intercepted cables from the South Vietnamese embassy to Saigon, and the CIA has bugged the South Vietnamese president. So um, they've got the communication on both ends. So now we go back to the conversation with Russell, where the president comes back to this discussion of the woman at the center of our story. There's Chenault, you know, of the Flying Tigers. She's young and attractive. I mean, she's a pretty good-looking girl. And she's around town. And she is uh, warning them uh, uh, to uh, uh, not get pulled in on this Johnson move. Then he, in turn, is warning his government. Then we, in turn, uh, know pretty well what he's saying out there. So he is saying that, well, that... uh, He's got to play it for time and get it by uh, the next few days. And it is now a little later in this conversation that Johnson lets on his true motivation. He's worried about the peace deal because he thinks he's close and he doesn't want to lose credit to Nixon, who he thinks is going to win the election. So here he is talking about Nixon. And the reference to Eisenhower is that Eisenhower came in after the election in 1952 and in March of 1953, not long after his election, he declared the armistice. And so that's what Johnson doesn't want to have happen in his case with a Nixon victory. I have played no politics with him and not going to, and I've given Humphrey more hell in their joint meetings than I have Nixon. Nixon's been pretty responsible. But uh, I don't want to pass up an opportunity and just sit there on my fanny till he comes in and let him just pick up like Eisenhower did the Korean thing and say, well, I, I did so-and-so. Same time, I don't want another day to go that I don't have to when I get what I've asked for. So Johnson's talked to Russell, and he's talked to his ally and given him the rundown of what's happening, what they've heard from their sources on Wall Street who are connected uh, with Nixon, what they know, what Nixon uh, forces may be up to. And also he's hinted or made it very plain that he's got some wiretaps going on. So what did the wiretaps from the Federal Bureau of Investigation show? They were of the South Vietnamese embassy, and they struck pay dirt when they heard Cheneau on the phone to the South Vietnamese ambassador saying that she had contacted her quote-unquote boss and that the boss was saying, hold on, we're going to win. What that meant was that the Nixon team was going to win. And she said that the ambassador was, the the message to the ambassador was hold on. And she talked about her boss being in New Mexico. Now, 
At this time, Nixon wasn't in New Mexico on that day, but his running mate, Spiro Agnew, was. So in this case, her boss, it seems, was Agnew. That would make sense when he said, we're going to win. And it wasn't Mitchell, John Mitchell, who was running the campaign, although he could certainly have referred to the campaign in the third person. This was on the same day that the South Vietnamese president had announced that he would not be sending a delegation to Paris for the peace talks. Now, less than 48 hours before, Johnson had halted the bombing of North Vietnam and returned for an agreement from the North Vietnamese to do three things, negotiate with the South and Paris, stop shelling civilians in the cities, and to respect the demilitarized zone. So this basically, this announcement by the South Vietnamese president that he wasn't going to go to Paris, that he was going to, as the boss in the Nixon campaign said, hold on, basically undermined the president's peace initiative. And so furious or concerned or whatever, Johnson placed a call to the highest ranking elected Republican in the land, and that is Everett Dirksen. Now, this is a different phone call than the phone call we started our episode with, which is on the 3rd of November. We're not quite there yet. We're at the the 31st of October. This is basically Johnson coming in with a brushback pitch. And what he says is that some of Nixon's supporters were, quote, getting a little unbalanced and frightened. They were calling Hanoi in the north and Saigon in the south with a message that basically interfered in the negotiations. And the net, this is Johnson talking, the net of it, and it's despicable, and if it were made public, I think it would rock the nation. But the net of it, said the president, was that if they just hold out a little longer, that Nixon is a lot more sympathetic and that he can kind of, they can do better business with him than they can with their present president. Well, of course, the present president is President Johnson. Now, more from Johnson. Now, I rather doubt Nixon has done any of this, but there's no question but what folks for him are doing it. And very frankly, we're, we're reading some of the things that are happening. The delay, said the president, is proving fatal. Here's Johnson again. But they've got this question, this new formula put in there, namely wait on Nixon. And they're killing 400 or 500 a day waiting on Nixon. Now, these folks, I doubt, are authorized to speak for Nixon. But they're going in there and they range all the way from very attractive women, in that case, he's talking about Chenault, to old line China lobbyists and some people pretty close to him in the business world. It's important to note that he makes two distinctions there in the course of that brief part of the conversation between what Nixon may be doing, what Nixon may know, and what agents on Nixon's behalf may be doing. This is why Johnson could never blow the whistle out loud, or, and there were other reasons which we'll get to in a minute, but he wasn't sure he had the total goods on Nixon. Here's a little more from that tape where the president gets into some odiferous metaphors. To me, when Nixon's saying, I want the war stopped, that I'm supporting Johnson, that I want him to get peace if he can, that uh, I'm not going to pull the rug out of him. I don't see how in the hell it could be helped unless he goes to parting under the cover and getting his hand under somebody's dress. And he better keep Mrs. Uh, Chenault and all this crowd uh, just tied up for a few days because he's got the right, he's got the right uh, formula, and I think he's done well. I think that I think it Humphrey screwed himself up. John Connor tell me he's going to lose Texas just because he shimmed it on the war. So the president also had a second problem, and his second problem was Hubert Humphrey. Remember, of course, that Humphrey is going around talking about peace in our time, and the South Vietnamese are worried that he's going to sell them out. And what's happening, and remember, the South Vietnamese are worried they're going to sell them out because they believe that Humphrey will benefit from a bombing pause. And if Humphrey wins, he'll sell them out. So no bombing pause, no Humphrey win, no selling them out. And and what the president does is he calls up Humphrey's campaign manager, a guy named James Rowe, and says, basically, tell Humphrey to stop going around talking about how this is so politically good for him that there might be this bombing pause. And here's uh, some of that conversation. Russ said, tell Hubert, please not to brag. 
Please not to be exuberant. Just say, I pray for peace. Period. Yeah. And let the others, they'll know what it does if they just if we don't jump up and down about it. Yeah. So you watch that. I will. I think his line has been pretty much, this is the president that's handling this, so forth. The only time he, he showed any jubilation was a little when after we on the plane, I'm afraid a couple of the pool reporters saw him in the back. Yeah, yeah they described him as going up and down the plane being jubilant and exuberant. And, of course, that just puts the John Towers, uh, let me show you what they're saying about it, you yeah. see. It just, it's a, it's a good excuse for them. Uh. Now, the day before the election, it's the 4th of November now, the president has been tending these two pots, the Humphrey pot, trying not to keep it on the boil, the Nixon pot. All of a sudden, on the 4th of November, knock, knock, knock on the White House doors, comes Christian Science Monitor Bureau Chief Saville Davis. Now, the bureau chief didn't need to meet with the president, which is a good thing because the president wasn't there. He was in Texas at his ranch having a good time. Davis was carrying with him a story that was a bombshell. With voting the next day, his story, which was from the Saigon correspondent, had this as its first paragraph. This is the day before the election. Purported political encouragement from the, from the Richard Nixon camp was a significant factor in the last-minute decision of President Thieu, this is the South Vietnamese president, the president's refusal to send a delegation to the Paris peace talks, at least until the American presidential election is over. That morning, the president had been riding at his ranch, and he returned back to find a note saying, call immediately. So he did, and he convened a conference call with his secretary of state and his defense uh, secretary, Clifford. So Dean Rusk, secretary of state, Clark Clifford, secretary of defense. So the story can't get out, Johnson said. At the very least, it can't get out from the administration side, and the administration can't validate this story because it'll it'll show that they've been tapping the phones of an ally. And so they're trying to figure out what to do with it, even though they know the story is absolutely true. And in the course of this conversation, Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, weighs in with the kind of statement that you're supposed to make when you don't know you're being recorded, but in Washington where someday everyone will know the truth. So I'll have to read it because the recording isn't that clear. In fact, there's a very funny exchange on this conference call where nobody can hear anybody else. It's very, it feels very modern in a modern conference call. Anyway, here's Dean Rask on this question of whether they can confirm the Christian Science Monitor story about collusion between the Nixon campaign, Anna Chenault, and the South Vietnamese government to slow walk this bombing pause. Dean Rusk. Well, Mr. President, I have a very definite view on this, for what it's worth. I do not believe that any president can make any use of interceptions or telephone taps in any way that would involve politics. The moment we cross over that divide, we're in a different kind of society. President Johnson assents, although not so enthusiastically, but he does say yes. This is interesting, obviously, in the context of any dirt that a campaign gets, whether it's from uh, a former business partner or American adversaries slash enemies, the Russians. Do you do the right thing with the stuff you've been given? In this case, Rusk is saying, even though this incredibly volatile information could sink the Nixon campaign, get Humphrey elected, do things we want, we can't do it because it would, as he said, put America into being a different kind of society. So in politics, in campaigns where people do horrible things, there are those who nevertheless do the right thing. They may falter at various other times in their career, but there are occasionally people in the, in the conversation who feel compelled because of the norms and values uh, 
to not do the expedient and easy thing, even though in this case it would help Humphrey and it would hurt Nixon. And it would be worth telling the president, it would be worth telling people because the next president was committing treason, essentially, of a kind. And that's a good thing for people to know if you're about to elect them into, into the presidency. So that was a case for letting this out. But nevertheless, there was this feeling among Rusk that you had to stick to this norm. Now, you can debate whether letting people know beforehand about Nixon was a good idea or not. But at the very least, it's debatable. And what Rusk was doing is Rusk was saying it's not debatable. You shouldn't do it. And and the point here, basically, now that I've belabored it to the point of madness, is that when faced with an expedient, easy thing that would help you, Rusk was arguing for doing the harder thing. But so was Clark Clifford, the Secretary of Defense. He chimed in and he'd say, I'd go on to another reason also. And that is that I think some elements of the story are so shocking in their nature that I'm wondering whether it would be good for the country to disclose the story and then possibly have a certain individual elected. That certain individual is Nixon here, of course. It could cast his whole administration under such doubt that I would think it would be inimical to our country's interests. Clifford always liking a 10-cent word, but who are these people, this antiquated pish-posh? Were they wearing powdered wigs, writing with quilled pens, the country's interests? What about winning the election? Ruining your political opponent. This is soft soap patty cake stuff. Clifford worried here about the future president's relationship with the country. He's a Republican. He's beating the vice president of the Democratic administration. Nevertheless, this is what Clifford advised, along with Rusk. And Christian Science Monitor never published the story. Among other questions in this story is how much were all the players actually participating in this scheme? The South Vietnamese ambassador, in his memoirs, wrote that he only sent two cables to his bosses back home. Quote, while they constituted circumstantial evidence, Jim wrote in his memoirs, for for anybody ready to assume the worst, they certainly did not mean that I had arranged to deal with Republicans. But here are two of the cables that he sent, which came out later. This one on the 23rd of October. Many Republican friends have contacted me and encouraged us to stand firm. They were alarmed by press reports to the effect that you had already softened your position. This is on the position of a halt. This is another cable sent from the South Vietnamese ambassador. The longer the pressure situation continues, the more we are favored. I am regularly in touch with the Nixon entourage. So it seems like the South Vietnamese ambassador was a little bit more involved than he suggested. How about Chenault? What do we know about her? What can we say? Well, Clifford thinks what was conveyed to the South Vietnamese president through the Chenault Channel may never be fully known, wrote Clifford, but there was no doubt that she conveyed a simple and authoritative message from the Nixon camp that was probably decisive in convincing President Q to defy President Johnson, thus delaying the negotiations and prolonging the war. So what was, what was Nixon's role in all of this? Well, he said he had no role... In any of this, he said it told David Frost this in their famous interview. And in a call to to Johnson on the 3rd of November, Nixon called Johnson and said, My God, I would never do anything to encourage Saigon not to come to the table. Good God, we want them over in Paris. We've got to get them in Paris or you can't have peace. Well, Jack Farrell in his new book, Nixon A Life, has the goods on the old president. In the research, he found these notes from... H.R. Haldeman, of course, his top man in the campaign, and then his chief of staff in the White House, 
Those um, notes were sealed until 2007. One of the notes has Haldeman writing after a conversation with Nixon, quote, Keep Anna Chenault working on South Vietnam, Nixon ordered Haldeman at the peak of this business. Elsewhere in his notes, Haldeman writes, quote, any other way to monkey wrench it, meaning the peace process. Anything R.N. Richard Nixon can do. So here is Farrell's conclusion. The South Vietnamese president's foot dragging was encouraged by signals sent by Nixon and and shut a window that, with the help of the Soviet Union, Johnson and his aides had believed they had opened This is a window to peace. It's hard not to conclude that all of Richard Nixon's actions in a lifetime of politics, this was the most reprehensible. So Richard Nixon was directly interfering in the activities of the executive branch and the responsibilities of the President Johnson. And we're talking about an ongoing war here. That's what makes this different than Michael Flynn's contacts with the Russians at the time of the Obama administration was enacting new sanctions. The allegation is that that Flynn basically sent a signal to the Russians in his conversation with the ambassador that the new administration, the Trump administration, would be softer than the Obama administration. But at that point, Trump was already uh, the president-elect, and the Russians obviously weren't in a hot war in the way the Americans were at war with Vietnam. Two other little interesting codas here. One is from Chris Whipple's book, The Gatekeepers, which is about the White House chief of staff. And he tells a story about Nixon, after now having been elected, uh, has a meeting with J. Edgar Hoover. And this is how Haldeman recalls that meeting. The president asked me to be present when Hoover paid his respects. Hoover, florid, rumpled, came into the suite and quickly got down to business. He said LBJ had ordered the FBI to wiretap Nixon during the campaign. In fact, he told Nixon Johnson had directed the FBI to bug Nixon's campaign plane and that this had been done. In truth, no such bug had ever been planted on Nixon's plane, but and Hoover was essentially lying to the president-elect to cleverly play on Nixon's suspicions and therefore be the candy giver to Nixon. Nixon's suspicious, oh, I'm giving you little bits of candy to feed your suspicions, and that puts me in your good graces. But this is what's interesting about Nixon in response to that. So Hoover goes and Nixon uh, and Haldeman talk about a cup of coffee. (laughs) And Haldeman says, you want a cup of coffee? And then Nixon stared at the cup for a minute and he said, and this is in Haldeman's recollection, so the coffee cup is central to the narrative flow here. And here's Haldeman. I remember the moment clearly because the next word surprised me. Instead of remarking angrily on the bugging of his plane, Nixon didn't know that, that Hoover was just telling a story here. He thought he took it for real. Nixon said, with some sympathy for Johnson, quote, well, I don't blame him. He's been under such pressure because of the damned war. He'd do anything. Nixon paused, holding the cup and said, I'm not going to end up like LBJ, Bob. Hold up in the White House, afraid to show my face on the street. I'm going to stop that war fast. I mean it. The war in Vietnam would last another four plus years until August 15, 1973. That's from Chris Whipple's The Gatekeepers. So there you have Nixon learning about what Hoover said were wiretaps and basically saying, oh, you know, no big deal. In the current Trump administration, President Trump has brought up wiretaps from his predecessor that never existed and has pressed that as a as a cause against President Obama. Another coda here is from the book Chasing Shadows, the Nixon tapes, the Chenault affair and the origins of the Watergate. This is a great, great argument from Ken Hughes and basically argues that that three years after the election, as the paranoia starts to seep in about the um, after the Pentagon papers are released, Nixon fears that his 
engagement in and participation in the Chenault affair, which is essentially politically treasonous, would be exposed. And so he's so fearful that it'll be exposed that he creates the secretive investigative unit, the White House Plumbers. And it was that covert operation of the White House Plumbers created to make sure the Chenault stuff never got out that ultimately grew into the operation that led to Watergate, which led to the cover-up. And we all know where that headed. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and lets the community know that you're a valued member. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Powers. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who really requires new batteries for the spelunking lamp. Having helped me find all kinds of good stuff for this in the previous episodes, Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. 